Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Really excited today to be joined by Alex Katran, who is the founder of the AI Education Project, AIEDU.org. He founded the company back in 2019 in what I refer to as the before times. Lots of stuff has happened since then. He's been a really interesting follow, in particular, since the arrival of ChatGPT and the awakenings we've seen over the past year or so. I'd like to start by welcoming Alex to the show. Welcome to Trending in Education. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, it's great to have you. And you know, you've been doing really interesting work, good work in the space around AI literacy and trying to think ahead in terms of how do we train people up around all this new and emerging stuff that can feel kind of overwhelming? That's really going to be the the focus of the conversation. But to get started, we always like to get to know our guests a little better. Have you share with us your origin story, how you got to this point in your professional life? Yeah, I wish my origin story was easier to share in sort of a pithy way. Let me attempt that. So I'm not an educator. My parents, my mom's taught in, in Title I schools her whole life. She's a math teacher. She's a principal now. I started my career in politics, went to Ohio State. I didn't want to run for office, but I wanted to work in D.C. My coming of age was the Obama mm. 2008 election. And then when I graduated, it was the 2012 re-elect. Yeah. So I started in politics, worked on Obama's re-election campaign, went to D.C., you know, did the whole D.C. thing for like four years. And the Obama administration was, was coming to a close. And I had this fateful conversation with a mentor of mine who was he was a lobbyist and he was working with all these big, you know, tech companies. And he was like, Alex, I don't know what it is or anything about it, but everybody I talked to was telling me big data, machine learning, you know, that's the future. You should just follow that. Yeah. This is like mid 2010. 2015. This, yeah. This is like yeah. 2015. And it, 2015 was when the, the period where machine learning and neural networks and the cloud compute capabilities really had reached a point of, it wasn't transformational necessarily, but it was really achieving sort of wide adoption across yeah. lots, lots of organizations are forming data science teams like if you yes. don't have a data strategy you're hiring a consultant to come up with one it was very much like almost a precursor to what we've been seeing just most recently yeah exactly and it was even without you know like generative ai and language models you know machine learning was legitimately changing the world it was just doing it much quieter sort of like you know uh, harder to identify ways unless you were like sort of really in it so i went and joined an ai company halfway through 2015 it was called opower and they were using machine learning to basically help large-scale utility companies reduce their energy usage using behavioral science and nudging and, and mm. ml so that was sort of the start of the journey i'll sort of fast forward i ended up moving to san francisco and i didn't have like this sort of like you know immediate decision that I want to be in the AI space. I was working for an AI company, but you know, I was doing communications and policy and I sort of thought of myself as sort of like a policy person. Yeah. Um, and I literally, I'll tell you, I watched, I went down a YouTube rabbit hole one night. I watched Nick Bostrom's Google talk on superintelligence. Hmm. And for your listeners, Nick Bostrom is a, a philosopher uh, at Oxford at the Future of Humanity Institute. And he basically has been sort of one of the most vocal voices about the potential for AI to become extremely powerful and so powerful that we might even, you know, lose control of the technology and it could come to sort of dominate us. He's a philosopher. He's not like an AI engineer, but I just found that whole sort of thought experiment fascinating. And just to jump in real quick for our listeners, it does look like Alex is positioned in front of perhaps the Big Bang. It also might be a cool guy not looking back at an explosion, but there is 
an element of something is going on around AI. And I'm picking up from you, a guy who's been kind of riding the wave, but you've been picking up signals for some time. And it sounds like this rabbit hole was one of those real epiphanal moments for you around AI is going to be the future. AI is really something for me to jump into a little more. It, it was one of them, but I, you know, I think, and this is why people are, I think, justified in, in being a little skeptical. You know, when they hear people talk about ChatGPT and generative AI, how big of a deal it is. Since 2015, we've also had a lot of other hype cycles. We've had NFTs and crypto and yeah. metaverse and VR, AR. So yeah. I, I think, you know, there is the, the technology class, I guess, has this tendency to get really excited about stuff. Yeah. Um, we just did our show on the Gartner hype cycle. You know, so like hype yeah. cycles, they're like waves, waves to the shore. You know, people need to be talking about something. So it's easy to be skeptical. It's a boy who cried wolf phenomenon. Yes. I, so I think, and, and this is be sort of like, I guess will be sort of like my segue into kind of getting more on topic of education. But I think the, the advantage that I had was I was sort of like mixing in San Francisco with the AI futurists, but I was also doing that from the perspective of understanding that AI was actually quite already mature. So this wasn't, you know, totally conjecture. You know, this is mm -hmm. basically an extension of if it continues to progress, it seemed a lot more logical than, you know, there was there was less of a leap that you had to make, you know, if you just yeah. sort of assume that, you know, computing power is going to get stronger and it's probably going to happen quite quickly. And Kurzweil singularity, we're within range of the singularity in terms of the techno-futurist camp. Folks have been expecting and Talk about this stuff in the abstract theoretical sense for quite some time, but quite then you can, you can start to see the rubber meeting the road in the last, say, five to 10 years, which is what you're describing. And then coming at it from the lens of policy, behavioral science, and communication is really interesting to me as well, because podcasts as a format, science communication is a huge you know, genre and category of what's going on out there. That's part of what I've been really impressed with in terms of what I've seen from you so far is making it accessible, not just to AI engineers, but making this conversation more relevant and digestible really for everyone, because we all need to become fluent with this stuff. And, and so that is the origin of AIEDU is I, I was kind of hooked by the futurists and I started volunteering. I just tried to get deeper wherever I could. And so I was volunteering for this uh, AI think tank that had just spun out of the Harvard Kennedy School called the Future Society. And I ended up going and joining an AI company and sort of leading corporate social responsibility. And I was basically hired to stand up a like an AI education program for the judicial and, and legal system. And, and so I was attending all the conferences. I was going to all of the roundtables and the forums. And I noticed exactly what you sort of pointed out, which is there is... Among the techno class, if you will, there is either an inability or there was a disinterest in translating it for mm. regular people. And the conversations often had this almost like a tinge of, well, you know, AI is going to become so powerful. What are we going to do with all of these, you know, regular people who are just going to be left behind? And, and yeah. you know, you, even like conversations about universal basic income mm. had this sense of like, well, we're just gonna have to deal with these people, right? Like right. They're, they're just never gonna be able to wrap their heads around this. It's very inspired by idiocracy, the movie. Yeah, there is a certain, sometimes explicit, but at least some implicit elitism that I think folks inside the technology bubble can fall prey to if they aren't careful. 
look, I think there are actually maybe bad actors who are legitimately elitist. In most cases, though, it's not so intentional. It is absolutely correct to say that for most people, they are going to struggle to wrap their heads around artificial intelligence. That is true, right? And so the sentiment isn't necessarily wrong. But for me, you know, being someone who wasn't a technologist and also coming from, you know, growing up in Ohio and knowing that the community in Akron, Ohio, right? Like the community I grew up in was literally on like the Brookings Institute list of 20 cities, the top 20 cities most at risk for automation. Did you know LeBron growing up? I spent two years at the St. Vincent St. Mary. So I think that we maybe even overlapped by Wow. Um, there you go. But no. And he his he, his house in Bath was maybe like five, 10 minutes from my much more, you know, humble cul-de-sac. But yeah, you know, LeBron put Akron on the map before yeah. LeBron were just this sort of like foregone town that used to be the center of the world back during the rubber room. Right, right. And so the people in Akron are those people, right? Like this is a place where when we were, to, when we were talking about who's going to be left behind, if we don't do things different, it is sort of very plausible, right? That there's going to be these concentrations of productivity and access to wealth that's enabled by, whether it's AI or other stuff. So really, AI, you started out with this much broader goal. How do we make sure that the citizens, that Americans are ready and are aware because they need to be hearing the same stuff I'm hearing? Like, you know, part of this is just information asymmetry, because if you, mm -hmm. you know, like I had this mentor in my life who was like, Alex, AI is the future, you know, follow it. But I was very fortunate to be sort of in the right circles to have access to that. And so we started out really, really broad. And I'll tell this story. You know, I gathered all of the most important mentors and connections that I had made over my sort of short career at that time. And it was in DC and we had like this like round table. And my idea was I was going to pitch my idea for an AI think tank to like raise awareness about AI. And, and it was like 20 people sitting around this table. And so I, I kind of gave my like sort of 10 minute spiel. And my plan is they're all going to be like, yes, Alex, this is a great idea. Here's how we can help you do it. And I was going to leave with all of these sort of like leads and we're going to raise money. And basically what happened was, is it turned into everybody sort of took turns. We went around the table and each person took their sort of like two to three minutes to explain why my idea was completely batshit. You yeah. know, it was just like, this is not a good idea. There's already lots of think tanks. Like, how are you going to differentiate yourself? Like, we don't need another voice and tech policy. So that sucked, but it actually was really helpful because I realized that you know, we didn't need another think tank. Like we don't need another communications or brand strategy for AI, broadly speaking. And I was telling my mom about, you know, some of this stuff. And she commented at one point, because I, I was still working with this, with this company doing judicial education. So we were teaching judges about artificial right. intelligence. Right. That was really practical because this company I was working for was using AI in the legal sector. And they saw that judges had no idea how AI was being used in their courtrooms. Mm -hmm. And so I would... I had just finished an event, I think it was at NYU, and I called my mom and was kind of bragging about this cool event that I did. And she remarked offhand, like, oh, you should come to my school and teach and do the same presentation because I feel like my kids would love to learn about wow. it. Mm. And that was a, that was legitimately a light bulb moment for me yeah. because it was like, what do you mean? Like, we're not talking to high school students. I mean, they're the ones who need to know about this. Like, they're literally picking yeah. what career path. I mean, mm -hmm. and I'm hearing about career paths that we know, right, are, are going to probably disappear. At the time, it was mostly like truck drivers, right? And right. Like yeah. That's kind of where most people were heads went when they thought about like automation and thus began sort of this like initially it was slow and then it kind of picked up speed in terms of just having more conversations with any principal or teacher that would take a meeting to just get a sense of like, is Akron Public Schools where my mom taught or teaches, are they an outlier? Or are they sort of the rule? And they're very much the rule. I mean, there's like 13,400 school districts in the US and, you know, we could find less than like 12 that had some kind of an AI program. And even those programs were still like, yeah, there were like summer camps or after school clubs. It wasn't, mm -hmm. there was no sort of like AI readiness or even 
you know, future readiness. Right. Most career education is not structured. You know, right. like English teachers who are doing the career education in some cases. Right. Um, and even computer science, if you're lucky enough to have it, is probably older languages taught based on a curriculum that's a couple years old. Like if you're fortunate, maybe you have some connections into industry in the community who's maybe doing, but that's, those are boundary cases. Like generally speaking, the world of work is accelerating into the future and the world of K-12 is struggling to keep up. And that's creating this, this gap that we're trying to address. And then you found it in 2019, which is prior to the pandemic and then prior to the game-changing moments in the last year around large language models and chat GPT and everything that's happening these days. It's got to be kind of wild to have founded this based on good intent, expecting this thing to be on a sima perhaps for a little while. And then all of a sudden the heat got turned up and I imagine conversations and your life have changed pretty drastically over the past year. Can you catch us up on what that's been like? I mean, look, in some ways I called it. I definitely, I had a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings where people kind of like had a blank stare at me. And I had, and I live, I still remember this. At one point I was talking to some tech person and he was like, AI education project. I mean, shouldn't you be like the blockchain education project? I mean, I feel like that's really like where this is all going to go. And, mm. and so I, I think I should get a, a tiny ounce of credit for sort of like steering clear of some of the other shiny objects that there were. But, yeah. you know, like there was a 2013 Oxford study that said 47 percent is a famous study, right? Like 47 percent of jobs are at high risk for automation. And mm. in 2022, there was a article that came out that was like, ha, that study is completely wrong. You know, look, unemployment is only at 2 percent and they're predicting 47 percent of jobs are at risk by, I think it's 2035. And now suddenly, to come back to your question, I think where we are now is people are starting to realize that, you know, a lot of those predictions, and the Oxford study is actually consistent. I mean, McKinsey and there's a lot of other researchers that have kind of come roughly to the same number. Mm -hmm. OECD, I think, was a little lower. It was like maybe like 18%. It depends on whether you're looking at like the tasks and what percentage of the tasks are getting replaced versus the right. whole job. Right. But, you know, prior to ChatGBT, it was kind of hard to really conceptualize how that would happen, you know, mm -hmm. because the machine learning, the AI that we had access to was good, but you really had to there's quite a lot of conjecture to really be able to assume that, okay, this is going to replace like an accountant. Right. Chad GPT comes out and then suddenly, you know, if you use it, especially if you use GPT-4 or Claude, yeah. which are these much bigger models. Claude's uh, my dude lately. So thank you for the yeah, shout out yeah. to, to Claude from Anthropic. He's been helping with my show notes. Well, yeah, because it, it has a much bigger context window, which means it can sort of process a lot more inputs that will guide sort of like how it responds to your prompt. Yeah. And you can include uh, a document in the prompt. So you can include the transcript in your prompt to get the show notes. So it's immediately chewing our words and coming up with options for me in terms of how we want to describe yep. the conversation that just happened. So Claude plus Anthropic, you know, looks like they're pointed in the right direction as a, an organization, which was the the other element that I did like about Claude is that at least AI safety is something that they are writing down as something that is aspirational and really foundational to what they're doing. But don't get me wrong, I'm playing the field. I'm yeah. seeing other LLMs at this time. There's, there's nothing exclusive between me and, and Claude. 
I think that's actually the right way to do it is everybody should be playing the field. You know, we have multimodal models right around the corner and that's going to, oh, anyways, we'll get to that. Just to sort of put a funner point on this, when these language models came out, the important thing for people to understand is like 99.999% of people were completely stunned, right? They had never seen anything like that before. There were probably, I don't know exactly how many, but you can look like a couple hundred at most, maybe even less than a hundred researchers globally prior to ChatGPT that had access to a large language model. Right. But there were some people, you know, the GPT-2 was what, like prior to 2020? I mean, GPT-3 right. was around, I think, since 2020. Yeah, and this is um, 3.5 is the one that really made the big splash, but there had to be multiple iterations prior, not to mention, you know, Google, Google was like leaking bad information about its Lambda project, you know, <laughs> un somewhat unintentionally. There was awareness that this data is accumulating, that big companies like Google and Microsoft, they're all kind of honing this technology behind the scenes, but it was very much by and for the technically elite and then everything blew wide open last thanksgiving yeah part of it is like we all sort of got you know read in to something that you know a, a small group of people had access to the, the thing that i find so fascinating is the capabilities of language models are not linear based on like the training data the data set the training it happens in these jumps and so it was really hard to predict how powerful gpt4 would be Mm -hmm. And it is really hard to predict how powerful GPT-5 or what capabilities it would have. This is, I think Tristan Harris gave a talk and, and he talked about, you know, they were training this language model and they were training it just on English text. And at a certain point when the data set got big enough and it had been trained long enough, it was able to translate Farsi. And it's like, yeah. and it never, ever seen a single word of Farsi. And mm -hmm. we don't know how that happened. Yeah. The same goes for, you know, a lot of different capabilities. So. So yes, there were some people that were clued in, but I think legitimately, even those who were, you know, like myself, who were paying very close attention, everybody was startled. And so now, you know, your question is like, what has the last year been? I think for a lot of people, it's been like excitement and interest and, oh, this is like, you know, changing things. I think for me, it's been really just, I think increasing concern and, it, and, it, and I'm not concerned about existential risk. I mean, I am concerned about existential yeah. risk, but like, it's not really what I'm focused on. There's other mm. people that are working on AI safety. My concern is that for the last, you know, from 2019 through 2022, I was always under the assumption that most of the, the futurists were getting ahead of themselves. Like, yes, AI is going to change the world. And that's why I founded AIEDU. But I was really thinking like a 10-year time scale. Yeah. And so it's like, let's build this foundation while we have a window. Mm -hmm. Now, my concern is that, you know, most people have not used GPT-4. They haven't paid for Plus. Most people have not used Claude. They've right. used gpt free, the free version 3.5. And GPT 3.5 is good. And it's certainly cool. And you use it, and you can kind of imagine how this might be really yeah. useful, but it often isn't actually useful, especially if you're using it for complex stuff. Yeah. It's almost game-like. It feels like you're chatting. It reminds me back in the day, I've reminisced about Eliza, you know, in the basement in the eighties, working on my TRS-80, where there was a simulator it wasn't AI, but it was all programmed in conditional stuff. But you would, it was a, a therapist that was in conversation with you. And I remember trying really hard to get as crazy a diagnosis as possible. I remember that was sort of the, <laughs> the nature of the interaction. But I feel like the way we're interacting with these tools, the, the layperson, the average person who might, you know, experiment gently with it, is that it's like a curiosity. 
you know, I'll poke around with it a little bit. Maybe some of us find some useful applications for it. But then I think when you start shifting it into the educational context, I think it goes from lightweight, oh, you know, let me poke around here to more like our entire model is at risk. And at least some of the initial response within education was clamping down and preventing cheating, detecting these things so that we're not hoodwinked by our students. And I feel like that framing really does need, even though it does feel like there's been a pushback against that framing, it does seem like, even though it may have been sooner than you wanted, the fact that you were in the role that you were in really over this past year allowed for us to have maybe a little bit of a fuller conversation and work on some of the misperceptions that might be out there. But can you share a little bit of, of that? Because it does feel like there have been a few waves of reaction that have kind of rippled through the education universe. A lot of it coming back to like writing assignments and how we think about yeah. that side of things. But what's that been like? So I, I think I'm actually a little bit of a contrarian here because, you know, New York Department of Education is a good example of this, where New York City schools banned ChatGPT famously and had a lot of heat for it. You know, they were, oh, they're Luddites. You can't just, you know, the solution is not to just ban this technology. But, you know, the issue is that teachers were and are way behind students. And so students were getting, you know, TikTok how-to videos about how to actually use ChatGPT. And like the, the good example, just back to like why there's this big sort of disconnect. I was talking to one of my mom's friends at a dinner party and... They're like, oh yeah, ChatGPT. You know, I use ChatGPT. I wanted to, I, I had this dispute with a regional income tax authority, RITA is the acronym. And I was trying to get ChatGPT to help me write a letter to RITA to dispute this thing. And it wrote me this love letter to a woman named RITA. And so I, I was like, you have to show me. I really want to see the prompt. And she, she sent me the prompt and it was, write a letter to RITA. Enter. And so that was sort of like the... Yeah. I, you know, and I think that if you aren't really learning how prompt engineering works, you're really going to struggle to figure out how to get around it. Mm -hmm. where, where I'm a bit of a contrarian is I actually think schools are, are correct to try to ban chat GPT from students. I don't think that, well, first of all, there's, it's a gray area, but it, you know, you need parent permission if you're under 18. And right. I think that there's some potentially leeway at, a, we're actually doing some research to sort of really understand this, but. For most schools, they actually probably can't just let all students use it anyways. Right. And we don't really have a solution to how to change assessments because it's not so simple as, well, no more take-home essays. I think that's obvious now. But, you know, like oral assessments is not, I mean, there are these sort of like logistical limitations that we have yeah. during the school day. And until we have like, like, you know, some clear guidelines there, I don't necessarily think banning ChatGPT is the answer, but I also don't roll my eyes when I see a school say, hey, we want to pump the brakes and at least wrap our heads around what we need to be doing here and how to make sure that if we are, you know, endorsing it for students to use, that we understand how that can be done safely. Yeah. So that's kind of where we are. It's like schools don't know what the heck they're supposed to be doing. Technology is yeah. moving really, really fast. So by the time everybody has kind of figured out how to use GPT 3.5, GPT 5 is going to be Right. out and we're going to have multimodal models and you know by the time everybody has gone through their prompt engineering course and there's a gazillion of these now online is like how to become a prompt engineer right you know the way that we prompt is going to completely change and so that is the challenge that the education system faces is 
a technology that is moving at a velocity that is legitimately faster than anything that we've seen before. The internet, the computer, you know, we had a decade, decades to actually sort of like process that. Yeah. And this is happening in the order of months. And so our focus as AIDU has really been, you know, we're not coming to, to educators with like, here's the answer. Here's sort of like what you need to be doing. It's more like you need to be on this learning journey with us. Like I am in many cases have only used these tools for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months at best. Right. And so I'm not an expert, but I, I know what I should be looking for. And I know that I need to be paying attention. And I think that's sort of like the first step is that, you know, every decision maker and every teacher and every parent needs to understand like what the capabilities are. And until we get there, you're never going to be able to really even think about, well, how are we going to change assessments, let alone how does even like pedagogy and the future of learning change because our standards are probably going to have to shift. And we don't even know when to introduce language models. I mean, like, I think you definitely can introduce them too early and it might get in the way of metacognitive development. Right. But we need to be asking those questions and making sure researchers know that they need to be helping us with those things. The website is AIEDU.org and it's got links for three different user types, three different persona out there. There's the learners, there's the teachers, and there's the advocates. How do I tailor the messaging to that audience so that they're getting the information that they need? Because I think everyone does feel a little bit you know, in shock, a little bit paralyzed by how fast everything's moving. And there's a lot of AI FOMO out there. We're all suffering from the imposter syndrome around using some of this new stuff. But it does look like you're kind of maybe a light in the darkness to some extent where folks want to go somewhere, get some informed thinking about how your organization has thought about what this means. Can you walk us through what it might mean for those three persona? So it's important to understand, if you go to AIEU.org, what you're going to find is a bunch of modular activities and projects and curricula that are designed for K-12 teachers, mostly middle school, high school teachers to use in their classroom. It's largely not requiring chat GPT or other generative AI tools. It's largely actually designed. These are debates and classroom discussions, and the goal is build foundational and conceptual knowledge about what AI is and how it intersects with our lives. And, mm -hmm. and part of that's because a lot of this was built prior to ChatGPT, but also because we know that most schools are not, you know, their first step is going to be make sure teachers know how to use the tool and give it them access. And eventually right. students will have access. And so I, I think in terms of personas, the, the imposter syndrome, that's such an important thing to think about because, you know, most people feel like they are behind and technically they are. But the interesting thing about this new sort of form of AI is it's both moving really fast at this insane velocity that's like hard to, and it is hard to keep up with. But the good news is it's also the most accessible tool that we've ever been able to have because it's just natural language. And like, if you don't know how to prompt ChatGPT, you can just ask it like, hey, how can I prompt you? And that's sort of, you know, we've done like over a hundred of these sort of like how to use ChatGPT and, and generative AI trainings for teachers. And so we really sort of, try to learn like how do you kind of help people pierce the veil and you know ultimately it just comes down to helping people to kind of wrap their heads around like this is just a new way of interacting with technology that is it is legitimately different from google or yes. from all of the other types of tools that we've had and so ultimately that's i think step one for everybody is like you know build up the confidence to actually like really engage with this and make it a it has to be a priority it, it takes hours, not 20 minutes to actually figure out how to use it. Because 
you might learn the basics of prompt engineering, but you know, I'm sure this is the case with you and Claude. I mean, you talked about Claude. You have to spend time figuring out where it's useful and where it's not, and it isn't a silver bullet for everything. Yeah. Like I've used ChatGPT to help me write grant proposals, but I've learned that there's a specific way that you use it and you go yeah. section by section. Mm-hmm. You don't just say, hey, write me a grant proposal because then it just tries to spit something out and then you're you're spending a lot of extra time than you might otherwise. But I'm curious, like, what was your sort of like process of experimentation and like how like did you have sort of this moment where you were like, whoa, this is actually a big deal? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's also doing a trend spotting show looking at technology like this all the time. You know, it's something we've been talking about since 2016 is AI. I've been talking about centaurs. I've been really fascinated in chess, how humans, when paired with AI, can outperform AIs. And that's been sort of a foundational model, mental model for myself about the future of education and the future of work is that we're always blending with technology. If you look at even the way we use smartphones, they're kind of like appendages already. And then this to me seemed like a quantum shift in terms of the interfaces that we use, where we went from search to chat and then chat with it comes this sort of tendency to personify and to, you know, feel more emotional connection to the other stuff. And and as I mentioned, you know, Nancy, my virtual co-host, like this is a space that I've been kind of poking around in for some time. So for me, what was cool about the technology was that right when it came out, I immediately had uses for it. You know, I immediately could see the value of it. You know, we hooked Nancy up to ChatGPT back in, you know, the show was out early December, you know, oh, it was just, oh, you were literally like the, the early adopters. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me a lot of, you know, Pew does its digital readiness research and talks about the different psychographic components of our population out there. And the thing I keep coming back to is there's this notion of the cautious clicker where, you know, some of us just get in there, early adopters, you figure it out by breaking things, then you fix it. And that's just kind of the engineering mindset. But then there's other people who are cautious and kind of afraid of failure, afraid of something going wrong. And I think that psychology is the one that we actually need to address, especially in education, where there's already a problem around trusting teachers and teachers feeling like they're perhaps under siege, not understood, disconnected. Their students are ahead of them, to your point. And it's a really difficult job already. And then there's this new dimension of media literacy, digital readiness that, you know, the way I think of it is like, we have to kind of hold their hands a little bit and figure out how to bring them through probably emotionally first. And that's why I'd be curious, your perspective as someone who's focused on communication and policy and even the behavioral science stuff you were talking about before, how do we nudge people into this stuff? so that they actually feel like it's theirs and they feel like it can be empowering rather than a threat. Yeah, I mean, so we've been very focused on, you know, it's like my background in community organizing is, you know, you have to kind of go to the places where people are. Yeah. You can't have like a AI summit in San Francisco and expect people to fly in. Like you have to go to Wisconsin and mm. Ohio and Florida and Virginia and, you know, and you just like, and and you have to meet teachers where they are. And so for us, that means, helping them kind of identify some really specific use cases where this is going to help them and this is going to make them more efficient and more effective. And and so, you know, until they have that connection, it is going to just feel like this scary thing. And this is why I've kind of 
I, I've gone past the emotional period of, oh, wow, this is cool and exciting. And yes, AIEDU is in sort of like the center of all of this, of the hurricane. And whether you think of it as like a good kind of hurricane or a bad one. But I've really started to shift into this much more concerned frame of thinking where, you know, I do worry that people are, we have a narrow window where this is, where, where we have an opportunity to actually bring people along and make them feel like they're empowered and part of this. Mm -hmm. And I think very soon people are going to start to think of AI as something that's happening to them. Mm -hmm. And once that happens, it's very hard to sort of like disintermediate that out yeah. of their thinking. You develop this narrative of the robots are coming for me. Right. And I think if you're using it, then suddenly this is like, you're excited about the, the newest tool because it's going to be something that you're going to get access to. And I experienced that with AI art, but I started using Midjourney and the new Midjourney came out. I was like, whoa, this is like, this is something I get to play with now. But if you're not playing with it, and if you don't feel like this is something that benefits you or that is actually useful, then it's just, oh, well, what's next? So now right. kids are going to be able to create images using ChatGPT. And so that's sort of like the urgency here is we have yeah. to kind of empower teachers. And then we don't know the answers to all these tough questions. And so we need to not just empower teachers to like use the tools, but they are going to have to help us answer these questions. The challenges you have you kind of know now, right? Like everybody's going to need to have a proficiency in using generative AI when they graduate high school. And we also know, I think you can introduce generative AI too early. Like that tension is, we don't have an answer to it. You know, like right. and, and I, have, I talked to an English teacher the other day and she was like one of the first teachers we did like a chat GBT training with. And I was like catching up. I was like really excited to hear, oh, how have you been using chat GBT? And she's like, well, I'll tell you, I started out and it was it was awesome and I was like using it in class and we were, had all these great activities and she's like then I actually started just to stop I've actually I don't use ChatGPT in my class anymore mm. like well why and she's like well you know I teach freshman English language arts and you know for example we're I need to teach my kids how to outline and yes ChatGPT is great at helping you make an outline but right. What what's happening is kids were learning how to ask for an outline. They weren't mm. learning how to outline. Right. And and I think that is just one micro example of like the broader challenge of like these tools are really useful, but knowing how to use ChatGPT isn't necessarily a substitute for core foundational knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and that I don't I mean, I'm curious for your take on this because I don't have an answer to it. Like I think this is something that is going to require almost the entire ecosystem to put our heads together and like come up with a plan. Yeah. And I do worry that <laughs> education just moves very slow. And I think we have a complexity problem, you know, mm -hmm. like we're faced with complex problems and we ain't got time for that. You know, like it's, we want things that are easy to solve or that, you know, actually the types of problems that AI could actually solve for us. AI is not one of those types of problems. It's complex <laughs> and it actually requires us to engage with it. And I also think to your point, you know, as the parent of a four-year-old, I do think AI has a training wheels problem. Humans interacting with AI has a training wheel problem where my son was riding around on his training wheels. He loved it. We took the training wheels off and now he's so discouraged because it's so hard to ride his bike without assistance. We're going to have to think critically about all of the things that AI is going to make easier for us and look at each of those things critically to say, should we learn this unaided first? And if we do, when do we integrate the AI and how do we do so in a thoughtful way, to your point, so that the gap between 
the future jobs that students are going to need to be ready for after high school, after college, aren't so radically different than this non-AI, non-technical education that we get. It's really interesting, especially if you think of the career and technical education wave that we're still kind of in the middle of, how hmm. that's going to sync up with a quantum shift in the technology profile, you know, the T in the middle of CTE, the technology just changed. So I don't know. I think we have to model that it's okay to engage with some of this complexity and not know the answers and then probably get better at listening to the people who are closer to the problems, which also I think the idea that's been out there, it's been coming up a lot in conversations about AI is that we have to think better about what humans will continue to need to do. And that's where I keep coming back to the idea of problem formulation. You know, I think of AI, Claude, whether it's whatever it is, it's like a research assistant. I can tell it what to do. And as long as I'm focused on the right problems, it'll make me better at solving those problems. What I think we need to get better at is shaping up those problems and figuring out where the technology can ultimately be in service of a solution of some kind. How do you think about that? I mean, we're getting close to time, but how do you think about almost teaching mindsets as opposed to getting too granular in terms of what you're teaching? Because it does feel like we're at a place where educators both need to be understood, but then they also probably need to be a little bit led through this. And I think a lot of that probably begins from a, a position of empathy and listening tours. Is there like a a footing or an orientation towards the problem that you think ultimately is useful for us these days? We're all going to have to be lifelong learners now. And it's that's sort of like a trope that has been talked about for a long time. But now it's legitimately every single person, whether you're an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer or a paralegal or a mathematician or a teacher, like your scope is going to be changing like year to year. and if you want to avoid being sort of left behind, the best solution is be the early adopter, like be the person that is like going to your colleagues and saying, Hey, like, have you, have we thought about this use of, you know, I just found this cool way that we could be using AI to be doing X, Y, Z. That's important for people to sort of have agency. And it's also going to help us make sure that there's as many bright and like diverse minds trying to tackle this problem because I don't think that this is going to be something that tech companies will solve for us or that policymakers will solve or, you know, district leaders by themselves. Like we really need, like, I think superintendents, when we talk to them, they want to understand, well, how are teachers using this stuff? Right. So everybody kind of needs the feedback from, you know, the non-technical people are almost the most important mm -hmm. users because the mm -hmm. techies get it. Like they're going to, they're going to always be they're going to be the easy ones. But when you think about like the big challenge and the big opportunity is in change management and digital transformation and like, how do you bring all the people along? And so, but of course, I think for the folks who listen to your show, I think they're already opting into that, right? And so right. I, I, this is always a question for you of like, how do you grow your audience? Like, how do we bring sort of this conversation to more people who who might otherwise think of it as just sort of like a nerdy sort of side thing that, that, that isn't necessarily doesn't need to be a priority? I, I think it's a great question. I mean, that's why I need to get Nancy on more. You know, show don't tell is the way I think of it. You know, I'm a solopreneur and I'm cranking out a lot of these things that I couldn't really do without 
a lot of the the new tools that are emerging. And to me, it's the opposite of the old war games movie. You know, the only way to win is not to play. I feel like it's the opposite. The only way to lose is not to play. And I feel like a little loss aversion, you know, you dropped some, you know, behavioral economics into the mix, a little nudge, like people are very afraid of doing the wrong thing as it relates to their own future and what's emerging. And that's where I think we need to come up with better stories, more persuasive vehicles, and then ideally build enough trust so that people believe we're coming at it from the right place. Any closing notes on that? Because there's a lot of talk around like ethical AI, human-centered AI, explainable AI. As someone who's thought about, you know, educating judges and policymakers, how do we build appropriate guardrails, checks and balances so that we don't get into what I like to call a sticky wicket? Yeah, sticky wicket. We're working on this quite deeply. And for us, it's really focused on what does an acceptable use policy or a responsible use policy look like for a district? Yeah. Now, that is not the same as ethical AI. You know, I think that is just sort of like the bare minimum for, for us to even be in a place where we can bring people along to this conversation. You have to have a policy in place to ensure that we know what to do if there's some sort of weird output, you know, that a student sees. Um, mm -hmm. So that's sort of like the fast answer is like, Every school needs to have a responsible use policy. Ethical AI is more like a much bigger field. And, you know, I think the unfortunate answer is that as these models get more powerful, in order to make them safe, they have to be weaker is what we've seen. You know, like mm. if you use chat GPT-4 over the last like six to eight months, you'll notice that it's a lot less useful than it was before. Mm. And, you know, a lot of tools, like some of the other AI tools, you have sliders and it's like, you can have, you know, more interesting and cooler outputs, but you also get more weird stuff. Yeah. Or you can have more consistent outputs, but it's also just like less cool. Yeah. And so I think that is probably going to be, you're probably going to basically have versions of tools that are quote unquote safe for people to use. And then there's going to be sort of internal tools yeah. that, you know, bigger companies will have access to. So mm. it probably looks something like that. And the question is like, how safe can we possibly get it to where we feel confident letting a kid use it? Right. Not to mention kids and teenagers are notorious for like jailbreaking. <laughs> you know, like if you build the security around it, they'll yeah. figure out ways to skirt it anyway. It's been an amazing conversation. Alex Catran is the founder of the AI Education Project, AIEDU.org. He's also out there in the media worth following. What platforms should folks follow you on if they want to keep up with what you have going on these days? You know, honestly, LinkedIn is like my my go-to right now just because nice. I don't have time for Twitter, for X and all yeah. that stuff. But um, but yeah, LinkedIn. Then we're also working on some YouTube content, which, uh, you know, stay tuned. Nice. Amazing stuff. Any concluding thoughts, takeaways? We've kind of been all over the place in a good way in the conversation. Hopefully our listeners getting some value out of it. But as folks head back to their lives, any concluding notes from you? Just, you know, stay tuned and pay attention. I mean, this is, this is like the most important moment. 2023 is like, you know, it's going to be like the moon landing or or Sputnik or, you know, the Wright Brothers flight. I really do believe that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can sort of just be sleepwalking into this future or you can be sort of like part of the the story. And I, I think that following folks like you who are really kind of at the cutting edge of that is like the easiest way to start is just, you know, just absorb as much information as you can. Amazing stuff. You heard it here first. Alex Katran telling you to follow Trending It Ed and Mike Palmer. Thank you so much for being on today's show, Alex. Thank you for having me. It's been fun.
And our listeners hopefully enjoyed what you heard. If you did, please subscribe, tell your friends, do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.